0: chapter four of the powerhouse by john buchan this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine chapter four i follow the trail of the super butler my first thought as i journeyed towards london was that i was horribly alone in this business whatever was to be done i must do it myself for the truth was i had no evidence which any authority would recognize pitt heron was the friend of a strange being who collected objects of art probably under an alias in south london and had absurd visions of the end of civilization that in cold black and white was all my story came to if i went to the police they would laugh at me and they would be right now i am a sober and practical person but slender though my evidence was it brought to my mind the most absolute conviction i seemed to know pitt heron's story as if i had heard it from his own lips his first meeting with lumley and their growing friendship his initiation into secret and forbidden things the revolt of the decent man appalled that his freakishness had led him so far the realization that he could not break so easily with his past and that lumley held him in his power and last the mad flight under the pressure of overwhelming terror i could read too the purpose of that flight he knew the indian frontier as few men know it and in the wild tangle of the pamirs he hoped to baffle his enemy then from some far refuge he would send for his wife and spend the rest of his days in exile it must have been an omnipotent terror to drive such a man young brilliant rich successful to the fate of an absconding felon but lumley was on his trail so i read the telegram i had picked up on the floor of the blackheath house and my business was to frustrate the pursuit some one must have gone to bohara some creature of lumley's perhaps the super butler i had met in the county court the telegram for i had noted the date had been received on the twenty-seventh day of may it was now the fifteenth of june so if someone had started immediately on its receipt in all probability he would by now be in bokhara i must find out who had gone and endeavoured to warn tommy i calculated that it would have taken him seven or eight days to get from moscow by the trans-caspian probably he would find pit heron gone but inquiries would set him on the track i might be able to get in touch with him through the russian officials in any case if lumley were stalking pitt heron i unknown and unsuspected would be stalking lumley and then in a flash i realized my folly the wretched letter i had written that morning had given the whole show away lumley knew that i was a friend of pitt heron and that i knew that he was a friend of pitt heron if my guess was right friendship with lumley was not a thing charles was likely to confess to and he would argue that my knowledge of it meant that i was in charles's confidence i would therefore know of his disappearance and its cause and alone in london would connect it with the decorous bachelor of the albany my letter was a warning to him that he could not play the game unobserved and i too would be suspect in his eyes it was no good crying over spilt milk and lumley's suspicions must be accepted but i confess the thought gave me the shivers the man had a curious terror for me a terror i cannot hope to analyse and reproduce for you my bald words can give no idea of the magnetic force of his talk the sense of brooding and unholy craft i was proposing to match my wits against a master's one too who must have at his command an organisation far beyond my puny efforts i have said that my first feeling was that of loneliness and isolation my second was one of hopeless insignificance it was a boy's mechanical toy arrayed against a powerhouse with its shining wheels and monstrous dynamos my first business was to get into touch with tommy at that time i had a friend in one of the embassies whose acquaintance i had made on a dry fly stream in hampshire i will not tell you his name for he has since become a great figure in the world's diplomacy and i am by no means certain that the part he played in this tale was strictly in accordance with official etiquette i had assisted him on the legal side in some of the international worries that beset all embassies and we had reached the point of intimacy which is marked by the use of christian names and by dining frequently together let us call him monsieur felix he was a grave young man slightly my senior learned discreet and ambitious but with an engaging boyishness cropping up now and then under the official gold lace it occurred to me that in him i might find an ally i reached london about eleven in the morning and went straight to belgrave square felix i found in the little library off the big secretary's room a sunburnt sportsman fresh from a norwegian salmon river I asked him if he had half an hour to spare and was told that the day was at my service. You know Tommy Deloraine, I asked. He nodded. And Charles Pitt Heron. I have heard of him. Well, here is my trouble. I have reason to believe that Tommy has joined Pitt Heron in Bokhara. If he has, my mind will be greatly relieved, for though I can't tell you the story, I can tell you that Pitt Heron is in very considerable danger. Can you help me? Felix reflected. That should be simple enough. I can wire in cipher to the military governor. The police there are pretty efficient, as you may imagine, and travelers don't come and go without being remarked. I should be able to give you an answer within 24 hours. But I must describe Tommy. How does one do that in telegraphies? I want you to tell me another thing, I said. You remember that Pitt Heron has some reputation as a Central Asian traveler tommy as you know is as mad as a hatter suppose these two fellows at bokhara wanting to make a long trek into wild country how would they go you've been there and know the lie of the land felix got down a big german atlas and for half an hour we pored over it from bokhara he said the only routes for madmen ran to the south east and north you got into siberia west lay the trans caspian desert But southward you might go through the Hisar Range, by Pamirsky post to Gilgit in Kashmir, or you might follow up the Oxus and enter the north of Afghanistan, or you might go by Merv into northeastern Persia. The first he thought the likeliest route, if a man wanted to travel fast. I asked him to put in his cable a suggestion about watching the Indian roads, and left him with a promise of early enlightenment then i went down to the temple fixed some consultations and spent a quiet evening in my rooms i had a heavy sense of impending disaster not unnatural in the circumstances i really cannot think what it was that held me to the job for i don't mind admitting that i felt pretty queasy about it partly no doubt liking for tommy and ethel partly regret for that unfortunate fellow pitt heron most of all i think dislike of lumley That bland superman had fairly stirred my prosaic antipathies. That night I went carefully over every item in the evidence to try and decide on my next step. I had got to find out more about my enemies. Lumley, I was pretty certain, would baffle me, but I thought I might have a better chance with the super butler. As it turned out, I hit his trail almost at once. Next day I was in a case at the Old Bailey, It was an important prosecution for fraud, and I appeared with two leaders for the bank concerned. The amazing and almost incredible thing about this story of mine is the way clues kept rolling in unsolicited, and I was to get another from this dull prosecution. I suppose that the explanation is that the world is full of clues to everything, and that if a man's mind is sharp set on any quest, he happens to notice and take advantage of what otherwise he would miss. My leaders were both absent the first day, and I had to examine our witnesses alone. Towards the close of the afternoon I put a fellow in the box, an oldish drink-sodden clerk from a Cannon Street bucket shop. His evidence was valuable for our case, but I was very doubtful how he would stand a cross-examination as to credit. His name was Routh, and he spoke with a strong north-country accent. But what caught my attention was his face. His jaw looked as if it had been made in two pieces which did not fit, and he had little bright protuberant eyes. At my first glance I was conscious of a recollection. He was still in the box when the court rose, and I informed the solicitors that before going further I wanted a conference with the witness. I mentioned also that I should like to see him alone a few minutes later he was brought to my chambers and i put one or two obvious questions on the case till the managing clerk who accompanied him announced with many excuses that he must hurry away then i shut the door gave mr routh a cigar and proceeded to conduct a private inquiry he was a pathetic being only too ready to talk i learned the squalid details of his continuous misfortunes he had been the son of a dissenting minister in northumberland And had drifted through half a dozen occupations till he found his present unsavoury billet truth was written large on his statement he had nothing to conceal for his foible was folly not crime and he had not a rag of pride to give him reticence he boasted that he was a gentleman and well educated too but he had never had a chance his brother had advised him badly his brother was too clever for a prosaic world always through his reminiscences came this echo of fraternal admiration and complaint it was about the brother i wanted to know and mr routh was very willing to speak indeed it was hard to disentangle facts from his copious outpourings the brother had been an engineer and a highly successful one had dallied with politics too and had been a great inventor he had put Mr Routh onto a South American speculation where he had made a little money but speedily lost it again. Oh, he had been a good brother in his way, and had often helped him, but he was a busy man, and his help never went quite far enough. Besides, he did not like to apply to him too often. I gathered that the brother was not a person to take liberties with. I asked him what he was doing now. Ah, said Mr Routh, that is what I wish I could tell you. I will not conceal from you that for the moment i am in considerable financial straits and this case though my hands are clean enough god knows will not make life easier for me my brother is a mysterious man whose business often takes him abroad i have never known even his address for i write always to a london office from which my communications are forwarded i only know that he is in some big electrical business for i remember that he once let drop the remark that he was in charge of some power station no i do not think it is in london probably somewhere abroad i heard from him a fortnight ago and he told me he was just leaving england for a couple of months it is very annoying for i want badly to get into touch with him do you know mr routh i said i believe i have met your brother is he like you in any way we have a strong family resemblance but he is taller and slimmer He has been more prosperous and has lived a healthier life you see do you happen to know i asked if he ever uses another name i don't think that the man i knew was called routh the clerk flushed i think it highly unlikely that my brother would use an alias he has done nothing to disgrace a name of which we are proud i told him that my memory had played me false and we parted on very good terms he was an innocent soul one of those people that clever rascals get to do their dirty work for them but there was no mistaking the resemblance there without the brains and force and virility went my super butler of blackheath who passed under the name of tuke the clerk had given me the name of the office to whose address he had written to his brother i was not surprised to find that it was that of the firm of stockbrokers for whom i was still acting in the bearer bonds case where i had heard pavia's name i rang up the partner whom i knew and told him a very plausible story of having a message for one of mr pavia's servants and asked him if he were in touch with them and could forward letters he made me hold the line and then came back and told me that he had forwarded letters for tuke the butler and one routh who was a groom or footman Tuuk had gone abroad to join his master, and he did not know his address, but he advised me to write to the White Lodge. I thanked him and rang off. That was settled anyhow. Tuuk's real name was Ralph, and it was Tuke who had gone to Bokhara. My next step was to ring up MacGillivray at Scotland Yard and get an appointment in half an hour's time. MacGillivray had been at the bar I had read in his chambers and was now one of the heads of the Criminal Investigation Department. I was about to ask him for information which he was in no way bound to give me, but I presumed on our old acquaintance. I asked him first whether he had ever heard of a secret organization which went under the name of the Powerhouse. He laughed out loud at my question. I should think we have several hundreds of such pet names on our records, he said. Everything from the Lodge of the Bald-Faced Ravens to Solomon's Seal Number 10 fancy nomenclature is the relaxation of the tired anarchist and matters very little the dangerous fellows have no names no numbers even which we can get hold of but i'll get a man to look up our records there may be something filed about your powerhouse my second question he answered differently routh routh why yes there was a routh we had dealings with a dozen years ago when i used to go the northeastern circuit he was a trade-union official who bagged the funds and they couldn't bring him to justice because of the ridiculous extra-legal status they possessed he knew it and played their own privileges against them oh yes he was a very complete rogue i once saw him at a meeting in sunderland and i remember his face sneering eyes diabolically clever mouth and with it all as smug as a family butler he has disappeared from england at least we haven't heard of him for some years but i can show you his photograph MacGillivray brought from a lettered cabinet a bundle of cards selected one and tossed it towards me it was that of a man of thirty or so with short side whiskers and a drooping moustache the eyes the ill-fitting jaw and the brow were those of my friend mr tooke brother and patron of the sorrowful mr routh who had already that afternoon occupied my attention mcgillivray promised to make certain inquiries and i walked home in a state of elation now i knew for certain who had gone to bokhara and i knew something too of the traveller's past a discredited genius was the very man for lumley's schemes one who asked for nothing better than to use his brains outside the ring fence of convention somewhere in the wastes of turkestan the ex-trade union official was in search of pitt i did not fancy that mr Tuke would be very squeamish i dined at the club and left early going home i had an impression that i was being shadowed you know the feeling that someone is watching you a sort of sensation which the mind receives without actual evidence if the watcher is behind where you can't see him you have a cold feeling between your shoulders i dare say it is a legacy from the days when the caveman had to look pretty sharp to keep from getting his enemy's knife between the ribs it was a bright summer evening and piccadilly had its usual crowd of motor-cars and buses and foot-passengers i halted twice once in st james's street and once at the corner of stratton street and retraced my steps for a bit and each time i had the impression that someone a hundred yards or so off had done the same My instinct was to turn round and face him, whoever he was, but I saw that that was foolishness. Obviously in such a crowd I could get no certainty in the matter, so I put it out of my mind. I spent the rest of the evening in my rooms, reading cases and trying to keep my thoughts off Central Asia. About ten I was rung up on the telephone by Felix. He had had his answer from Bokhara. Pit Heron had left with a small caravan on June 2nd, by the main road through the hissar range tommy had arrived on june tenth and on the twelfth had set off with two servants on the same trail traveling the lighter of the two he should have overtaken pit heron by the fifteenth at latest that was yesterday and my mind was immensely relieved tommy in such a situation was a tower of strength for whatever his failings in politics i knew no one i would rather have with me to go tiger shooting next day the sense of espionage increased i was in the habit of walking down to the temple by way of pall mall and the embankment but as i did not happen to be in court that morning i resolved to make a detour and test my suspicions there seemed to be nobody in down street as i emerged from my flat but i had not walked five yards before turning back i saw a man enter from the piccadilly end while another moved across the hertford street opening It may have been only my imagination but i was convinced that these were my watchers i walked up park lane for it seemed to me that by taking the tube at the marble arch station i could bring matters to the proof i have a knack of observing small irrelevant details and i happen to have noticed that a certain carriage in the train which left marble arch about nine thirty stopped exactly opposite the exit at the chancery lane station and by hurrying up the passage one could just catch the lift which served an earlier train, and so reach the street before any of the other travellers. I performed this manoeuvre with success, caught the early lift, reached the street, and took cover behind a pillar-box from which I could watch the exit of passengers from the stairs. I judged that my tracker, if he missed me below, would run up the stairs rather than wait for the lift sure enough a breathless gentleman appeared who scanned the street eagerly and then turned to the lift to watch the emerging passengers it was clear that the espionage was no figment of my brain i walked slowly to my chambers and got through the day's work as best i could for my mind was preoccupied with the unpleasant business in which i found myself entangled i would have given a year's income to be honestly quit of it but there seemed to be no way of escape the maddening thing was that i could do so little there was no chance of forgetting anxiety and strenuous work i could only wait with the patience at my command and hope for the one chance in a thousand which i might seize i felt miserably that it was no game for me i had never been brought up to harry wild beasts and risk my neck twice a day at polo like tommy deloraine i was a peaceful sedentary man a lover of a quiet life with no appetite for perils and commotions. But I was beginning to realize that I was very obstinate. At four o'clock I left the temple and walked to the embassy. I had resolved to banish the espionage from my mind, for that was the least of my difficulties. Felix gave me an hour of his valuable time. It was something that Tommy had joined Pit Heron, but there were other matters to be arranged in that far country. The time had come, in my opinion, to tell him the whole story the telling was a huge relief to my mind he did not laugh at me as i had half feared but took the whole thing as gravely as possible in his profession i fancy he had found too many certainties behind suspicions to treat anything as trivial the next step he said was to warn the russian police of the presence of the man called saranoff and the super butler happily we had materials for the description of Tuke or routh and i could not believe that such a figure would be hard to trace felix cabled again in cipher asking that the two should be watched more especially if there was reason to believe that they had followed tommy's route once more we got out the big map and discussed the possible ways it seemed to me a land created by providence for surprises for the roads followed the valleys and to the man who travelled light there must be many short cuts through the hills i left the embassy before six o'clock and crossing the square engrossed with my own thoughts ran full into lumley i hope i played my part well though i could not repress a start of surprise he wore a grey morning coat and a white top hat and looked the image of benevolent respectability ah mr Lythen, he said we meet again i murmured something about my regrets at my early departure three days ago and added the feeble joke that i wished he would hurry on his twilight of civilization for the burden of it was becoming too much for me he looked me in the eyes with all the friendliness in the world so you have not forgotten our evening's talk you owe me something my friend for giving you a new interest in your profession i owe you much i said for your hospitality your advice and your warnings he was wearing his tinted glasses and peered quizzically into my face i am going to make a call in grosvenor place he said and shall beg in return the pleasure of your company so you know my young friend pitt heron with an ingenuous countenance i explained that he had been at oxford with me and that we had common friends a brilliant young man said lumley like you he has occasionally cheered an old man's solitude and he has spoken of me to you yes i said lying stoutly he used to tell me about your collections if lumley knew charles well he would find me out for the latter would not have crossed the road for all the treasures of the louvre ah yes i have picked up a few things if ever you should care to see them i should be honoured you are a connoisseur of a sort you interest me for i should have thought your taste lay in other directions than the dead things of art Heron is no collector he loves life better than art as a young man should a great traveller our friend the lawrence oliphant or richard burton of our day we stopped at a house in grosvenor place and he relinquished my arm mr lythen he said a word from one who wishes you no ill you are a friend of pit heron but where he goes you cannot follow take my advice and keep out of his affairs you will do no good to him and you may bring yourself into serious danger you are a man of sense a practical man so i speak to you frankly But remember, I do not warn twice. He took off his glasses and his light, wild eyes looked me straight in the face. All benevolence had gone, and something implacable and deadly burned in them. Before I could say a word in reply, he shuffled up the steps of the house and was gone. End of chapter four. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine.